This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This is part one of a two-part special all about Prime Minister's questions. That time midday every Wednesday when our politicians go head-to-head in the House of Commons. In part two, later in the week, I'll speak to three people who've been sketchwriters of the Times on the best and the worst of the PMQ sessions that they've watched. But in this episode, I speak to Aisha Hazarika and Tom Hamilton, who both worked for Ed Miliband and later Harriet Harman, prepping them for PMQs. They've got a new book, Punch and Judy Politics, an insider's guide to Prime Minister's questions, in which they delve into the history of the perhaps most famous session in the House of Commons. And so in this episode, they give us the top 10 tips to surviving PMQs. Order! Questions to the Prime Minister! So let's start with the most obvious question. Before you even get into the chamber, top tip number one, do know what you're using PMQs for. What does that that mean, Aisha? Well, I think before you've even sort of thought about what your topic is going to be or what your attack lines are going to be, I think you need to have a bigger strategic think about what, how are you going to use your Prime Minister's questions. And every leader has done it um, slightly differently. When we spoke to Tony Blair's team, he and Alistair Campbell said that they used it as a sort of strategic framework to test really big meta-political messages. When Harriet did it, she wanted to try and use it as a platform to get gender issues um, in Parliament. Will William Haig said that he wanted to use it to restore the the sort of dignity of the Conservative Party in 1997 after they'd been smashed. And we now see Jeremy Corbyn using it really for social media content. And Tom, what happens when you don't know what the points of what you're using PMQs for? Well, the risk then is that you you can ask about topics in the news in any given week, but there isn't a wider strategic question where, you know, what you're trying to use PMQs to, to show as leader of the opposition and as prime minister as well is I'm a better candidate to be prime minister than you are, than this person is. And the way that I'm demonstrating it is by being better than them at parliament and by identifying what the key issues are that the public needs to know about and either showing that the government or the opposition uh, hasn't got the right answers to those questions. So if you're not identifying those questions, framing them yourself, then you'll have them framed for you. And I suppose you have to identify who the audience is because the audience could be the MPs on your side, the MPs on the opposite side, the journalists sitting above you, yeah. or however many people might be watching at home or the people on social media or TV. And, yeah. and that yeah. then that makes quite a big impact on what you end up doing. That's right. It's all, well, it's all of those things. One of the things that William Haig told us was that he would always try and get the Labour MPs opposite him nodding along. So he'd make a criticism of Tony Blair that 
in all honesty, they thought was probably fair. And so that that would lead to more sort of chattering in the series afterwards. <laughs> but um, he's got a point, hasn't he? He has got yeah, a exactly. point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Aisha, when you've got, like we see now with Jeremy Corbyn, and he's, his main audience essentially clipping up on social media, that actually means that it can seem quite disjointed in the House. As a PMQ's performance... It seems slightly out of sorts to what a particular audience then ends up seeing on social media. Definitely. I think Corbyn's team, and, and to an extent Theresa May as well, I think both of those leaders really think PMQs is a, a waste of time. They're very dismissive of it. They're both not particularly brilliant at it. But Corbyn's team have been very skillful in thinking, right, if we've got to go through this awful ordeal every week, <laughs> we may as well mine something out of it. So you can almost see when the clip is coming up, Corbyn has a, a sort of scripted section which is is used and you know that that will drop into your inbox or it will pop up in your timeline, regardless of what the actual score is. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn could have lost 6-0, but you will get something which makes him look like he's absolutely wiped the floor with Theresa May and no one is going to have the time to look at the full PMQs. And the Why genius, would you do the that? genius of that is that with, with telly, they will always give equal time. So even in a PMQs where one side is comprehensively won, the other side will get a clip of roughly equal length if they cover PMQs on the news at all. Whereas what the parties can do is just play their best line and miss out the fact that the answer to the question was a very good one that defeated the question or potentially that the clip that Theresa May is giving is complete non sequitur to the question that she's been asked. Either of those can be done on social media. And, and what's really interesting about that is the, the days of the, the press, the lobby giving the verdict of PNQs is over because with social media now, everybody's a winner. So let's move on to top tip number two. Do work out the point of where you're going. So once you're, 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 you're drawing up your list of uh, questions, particularly from the opposition, uh, leader of the opposition's perspective, what does that mean? Where are you going? Well, you should be aiming to use your, your set of questions to build an argument. It's not just six disjointed sort of factual questions. You know, what's the capital of, uh, of France? That's very interesting. What's the gross national product of Burundi? That's not, that's not what the point of, of PNQ is, not a pub quiz. So you're trying to sort of channel the questions towards a particular set of answers showing that the Prime Minister isn't on top. And so if you take, um, we discussed in the book at, at length, one of the, one of the most effective sort of strategic uses of PMQs by a, by a party leader was uh, was Tony Blair in the run-up to 1997, where he gave the soundbite that everyone remembers, which is weak, 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 which is just three words. But that's the culmination of about six minutes or so of, of argument. I asked him two questions. I said, as he himself said a few weeks ago, does he expect them to stand on the same manifesto? I answer it, Yes. I then asked him, will he at least seek to persuade people to stand on the same manifesto? I answer yes. He is so weak and powerless he can't even say. Isn't it extraordinary that the Prime Minister of our country can't even urge his party to support his own position? Weak, weak, weak. His questions force John Major to concede that he's not prepared to lead his party over the issue of Europe, whereas Tony Blair is prepared to do that in in, in that instance. And the weak, weak, weak is proved by all the argumentation, both the questions and the answers that have gone before it. And so it justifies it. But on the telly, all you really need to get is, <laughs> that, is that little clip. And presumably the, the decisions made by journalists to put it on the telly or in the papers are because they did sit through the build-up. Yeah. Whereas 
if somebody drops in the sort of slightly clunky argument in their final question, journalists will say, well, that doesn't make any sense and doesn't fit with, you know, where you were going. In that sense, you're building the argument for journalists. It, and it's very important to, to build that argument, as, as Tom says. You can't just have, like, six random questions. and But you have to be careful about not getting too bogged down in the argument as well. You're not in a court of law. You're, you're not presenting a PhD. And sometimes when Tom and I worked for Ed Miliband, Ed was very seized about the argument. And we would sometimes almost kind of take ourselves down a, an intellectual cul-de-sac where Ed would be like, oh, God, what's the argument what is the argument oh god what's the argument it would be like pretty basic what the argument was so you have to have that balance of having a coherent narrative you have to have a sort of a bit of travel from question one to six but it can't be too complicated or too intellectual it has to be accessible and clear and also presumably sometimes there's a risk that you think well let's try and there's there's lots of things going on let's try and lump them all together and you end up having one question on hospitals and one question on flooding and then something about a foreign affair and, and then you try to tie it all together with a slogan at the end. Exactly. You need to pick a subject and stick with it. Or if you do go from one subject to another, William Hague did this quite effectively, you can still link them with some sort of theme. So areas where the government is failing, but you use, you use the language to make sure that you're making that theme explicit rather than just saying, and another thing, schools are underfunded. That doesn't work. But if you, if you do have a clear, this has gone up, also, here's another thing that's gone up. Taxes, I don't know, what it, whatever it might be. But if you, if you have enough of a link, it can work. Um, Haig used to you know, try and make Tony Blair sort of jump from one page to another in his briefing book to make it as difficult as possible. In one period in that parliament, he, had, he noticed that Blair had two different briefing books. So he tried to ask one question that might cover something a topic that began with A in one briefing book <laughs> and then his next question go to a topic that might begin R at the bottom, back of the briefing book and just force Blair to switch between one and another just to gain that extra split second advantage. And the whole house get it clear when the honourable member for Blyneau Gwent says that he was told twice that he would be kicked out for the, of the Labour Party if he stood up for his beliefs we have the Prime Minister's personal assurance that he was not telling the truth. I have can give my personal assurance that no such threat was made. Yeah. In the end, you know, he still lost the 2001 election by a landslide, so let's not overstate it. But he, he had a bit of fun along the way. And just before we um, move on, because and I suspect we're going to get distracted all the way along as we try to do the top ten, th- let's talk about the briefing book, because Prime Ministers sometimes grip it for, to dear life. It's a sort of life jacket which is going to stop them drowning. And it's full of those little sticky post-it note yes. things all down the side, and that's how they, as you were saying, how you find... And yet other times, they... Th- chuck it to one side. If they're feeling confident and they want to look like they're being confident, they can chuck it to one side. How much, you spoke to lots of people for the book, but how, how much do people become obsessed with what's in that book? The longer they were at the dispatch box, I think they got more confident about your your knowledge of, of, of the big issues across government grows. And I think after you've been doing it for a certain amount of time and, and the, the sheer terror sort of subsides, you realise that the trick of actually being a good prime minister answering the questions is having enough of a broad base of knowledge. So if I gave shouted out a topic like health, you would have the three best things that the government had done on health and what were the three worst things that the previous administration had done on on health. So I think for for the more confident you know, as Blair went on, he didn't need his folder as much. And interestingly, Theresa May, often when it's home office issues, she doesn't need her brief. Because, because she, she knows that, yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, in a way, the last thing you want is to really engage with the question. 
because oh. then you end up in a right, oh. you're much better off saying, oh, did you mention doctors? Well, I'll tell you about doctors. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and you try and shift the subject onto your turn. I mean, th- there's nothing me- which makes you look less confident than just, hang on, wait a minute, and just yeah, like rustle, rustle, through. rustle. <laughs> two yeah. two yeah. folders of stuff. Let's move on then. Um, number three, having worked out what you're trying to do, you've maybe written your questions. Rehearse. Do rehearse. How important is that and how much time did people that you've spoken to spend rehearsing? It varies and governments and oppositions both spend time rehearsing but in slightly different ways. So David Cameron used to spend half an hour or so before he went in just having people throwing questions at him so that he could practice throwing answers back, which is a slightly different process from what you're doing in the opposition because in the opposition you've got, you construct your set of questions and you, you choose that set of questions. We used to use run-throughs to sort of work out whether whether the Prime Minister could get out of it very easily. And if he could, then you'd you'd hone it a bit. So, you know, I used to spend a long time pretending to be David Cameron, not doing an impression of him because I can't do impressions, <laughs> but just, just giving my... my well, I my, usually could do impressions. <laughs> yeah, but for do some not, reason... Do, do you not do a David Cameron? I'm, I haven't quite managed the gammon face yet. <laughs> don't talk about gammon. Don't talk about gammon. We're not allowed to talk about gammon. She's better at doing Ed, but we already had an Ed, so <laughs> that, well, that wasn't needed in the room. When, the, when we had the transition between... Ed Miliband and Jeremy Corbyn. Ed used to do run-throughs at quite an early stage with the first draft or so of questions and we'd hone the questions a lot based on how the rehearsal went. Whereas Jeremy Corbyn would tend to do it right at the end, you know, well after 11 o'clock on a Wednesday lunchtime, more just to to build confidence a bit and make sure that he knew roughly what he was saying when it was much too late really to, to hone the questions because that wasn't what he was using it for. Again, as Tom said, the difference in, in the time really varied. But I think leaders who took it very seriously and understood that, you know, all eyes were on them and it was a really important moment in the parliamentary week did tend to dedicate quite a lot of time. And we spoke to Gabby Bertrand, who used to look after David Cameron, you know, she said, look, it's sort of two days out of the diary. Now, when you're prime minister, that is even more of a pain than it is if you're leader of the opposition, because you can argue actually as leader of the opposition, it's one of your most important jobs to turn up at PMQs and not fall over and, and look kind of competent. So the amount of time is absolutely draining. And you can sometimes get yourself into a bit of a kind of loop in terms of how soon should you try and lock down your questions? How should you try and rehearse them? Because sometimes you could lock down a set of really good questions by about five o'clock the night before. You might think everything's brilliant. You send it round your team of advisors and then suddenly something happens overnight and you have to start and rip everything up and start again. So you always have that anxiety that it's never quite locked down. And we sometimes would have situations where we, we would get to about half 10, 11 o'clock We'd be starting to print off the bits of papers to, to take over to the chamber and someone would fly into the office with a new statistic. And of course, Ed, you know, that would be like, you know, sort of catnip to, to him because he'd be like, oh, this might be the killer statistic. OK, let's just stop everybody and let's really go through these statistics again. So you have to be quite firm about when you have a cutoff point as well. So at that point then, so the questions are coming off uh, off the printer. Number four of your top tips for how to get through PMQs, don't ask a question you don't know the answer to which sounds obvious, but then we keep seeing it PMQs. Leaders of the opposition get caught out when the Prime Minister gives them not the answer they were expecting. Never ambush yourself with a, <laughs> with a, with, with a question where the, the Prime Minister absolutely knows. There's a few examples of where this happened when we were working on it and we take our share of responsibility. One was when um, there was a big controversy around 2011 about selling off the forests, which was a, a, 
a, a brief scandal core celeb with 38 degrees sending petitions around. All, it was all a simpler time. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like the biggest thing happening in politics. It was like people got absolutely incandescent about yeah. it. Yeah. And, um, and so we were obviously going to ask about it. And um, Ed had a set of questions where the, the basic question was, you know, you've got this really terrible policy. Are you going to drop it? And David Cameron stood up and said, yeah, all right, then I will. That absolutely killed it because... That was the last thing we wanted him to do. And at that point, Ed's got five more questions, presumably. And it was horrific because we we, we literally didn't. We were all, I mean, I was in the garage. We're texting each other. I was going, I can't believe this. You know, we're like, what's Ed going to ask next? Like, what are you doing for your holiday? (laughs) (laughs) And it's brilliant as well because that's a humiliation for for the government because they're doing a U-turn. It's a humiliation for the Environment Secretary because you just had the Prime Minister dump on a policy in the chamber live on telly. But it's mostly a humiliation for the Leader of the Opposition who, if it had just been dropped on a Thursday morning, not at PMQs, he wouldn't have been part of the story and it would just have been bad for the government. So it was completely disastrous for us. But was it disastrous, something like that, basically inside the Westminster bubble in a oh, way yeah. that the U-turn ultimately is owned by the government? You know, the public well, noticed the I U-turn. They might not That's a good example noticed. of a story that everyone forgot about quite quickly, to be fair. But also that's, uh, again, there, there were all these old rules in politics, which is, you know, a U-turn's a really bad thing. But actually, that's a good example of how the government can can use a U-turn to their advantage. I mean, the best that our side could do to try and help save Ed at the dispatch box was kind of go, ah, you've, you've done a U-turn, you've done a U-turn. But actually, what's better? like You've sticking done the, the thing we <laughs> wanted you to do. You've saved the forest. The woodland people are very happy. But we would have thought, we had learned our lesson um, on that, but but oh no, because the very, very last uh, Prime Minister's questions that Ed Miliband ever did before the 2015 general election campaign, we were convinced that Cameron could not answer a question on ruling out rises in VAT. This is a good example of where a policy team working out the numbers can can end up damaging you because we worked out that the Conservatives' spending plans were completely undeliverable. So they couldn't possibly do all the things that we're going to do without either raising VAT or some of the taxes or cutting much more deeply than they said. Uh, the, the sums just didn't work. So Ed asked Cameron if he could rule out raising VAT in the next Parliament. Here's a straight question. Will he now rule out a rise in VAT? Straight answers deserve straight questions. And the answer's yes. Obviously, that floored us on the day. And then what happened when they won the election was they just changed the spending plans. So we were right, they didn't add up. But the great thing that governments get to do is just change them later. What really stung us about that was that the the strategic framework that Cameron and Osborne had used PMQs for against Ed, they had a number of messages, you know, can't trust him because of his brother owned by the unions. But the big attack line was on the economy. It was like Labour doesn't understand anything about the, the economy. You can't trust these people. So it was quite wounding for us on our very, very last outing to get completely humped on the economy, basically. Yeah. It's not the reason we lost the election, but it, it, it also didn't, didn't, help. Help, didn't help us win. <laughs> it, 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 it probably crystallised yes. part of what the wider concern was uh, about a mid-panel time. Which in a way brings us up, looking at it from the other side of the dispatch box, Top tip number five, do predict as many questions as you can. So is that what's going on in number 10 when they think he's going to ask about forest, he's going to ask about VAT? Well, there's, there's various different kinds of prediction. One is about predicting what the, the opposition is going to say and what quite a lot of people who either were Prime Minister or worked in number 10 told us was that um, they're actually pretty good is consistently pretty good at predicting what the Leader of the Opposition was going to go on most of the time. That's not that surprising because mm. the Leader of the Opposition is normally going to go on 
the biggest story of the week or one of the biggest stories in the week of the week. So you can sort of narrow it down, but then you've got to work out not not exactly what the questions are, because that's that may be beyond them, but what are the what are the most important things that we as a government want to say about those issues? Because that's what you're going to say anyway. Then the other part of predicting questions is it's not just about the leaders' exchanges. You've got a bunch of backbenchers asking questions. And one of the most important jobs that someone in number 10 has to do, not the Prime Minister, is to phone up all the backbenchers and say, what are you going to be asking about? Would you mind asking about this instead? So it's partly planting questions. If it's not planting questions, it's at least finding out what they're going to be asking about. So that one of one advisor said that it was it was a way of making, you know, thirty terrible minutes into fifteen terrible minutes instead. Well, these days it's you know, fifty terrible minutes into <laughs> twenty five terrible minutes instead, because at least you know what's coming from your side. And sometimes you know what's coming from from some of the Labour back, backbenchers as well, because they might say. I want to ask about a hospital in my constituency and give the Prime Minister the opportunity to, to come up with a decent answer, which is more useful to that backbencher um, to get a proper answer than it is just to embarrass the Prime Minister over something. And that's interesting. It's probably one of the things that people watching don't always appreciate. There's the order paper, the list of MPs yeah. whose names have literally come out of a hat. And then obviously others get called, so it goes from one side to the other. You could be an opposition MP who tells number 10 what it is you're going to ask mm-hmm. because you want more than just... I've got no idea what you're talking about. I'll write to you with a yeah. with a response because. And also, I think you know we we forget that Prime Minister's questions is quite a unique function because any member of Parliament from anywhere in the country can ask the Prime Minister about any issue, and local issues are important. Um, you know, it's easy for the the lobby and the, the 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 sort of watchers of PMQs to just think about the big strategic issues and the big kind of tussles of the day. They're very important for, for for local MPs to raise issues, and it help really helps raise their profile with their local media. So it's much better for them to give Number Ten good advance warning, so they can get a really good response from the PM. Then they're going to make it onto the local news that night. And you know, it is hard for local MPs actually to get enough cut through. So it can be a very very important platform. We sometimes are quite dismissive about. Um, people standing up and asking about local issues. Everyone can be a bit... But I think we forget that it is actually very important to them and their constituents yeah. and their local press. But there's a different, there is a difference between the, uh, you know, there's a problem at my local hospital or when's that bypass going to be built. Proper local issues that people are genuinely concerned about and the really stinky, toadying questions <laughs> you get from the... When you were going, when you were writing the book and going back over, over time... Is that got worse? It just feels, or maybe they're just even less adept than than previously. But it feels like every week there's a competition amongst Tory MPs to ask the most pointless. Wouldn't you agree with me that isn't it good that the Tories are in government and then sitting down? I don't. I don't know if it's got worse. I mean, the the, the most sycophantic question that we ever saw. Well, there was there was one brilliant one that Tony Blair got where the question was just, would, would you agree with me that last week's budget was absolutely magnificent? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the the most toadyish one that I think we found in the whole research was in Margaret Thatcher's last ever PMQs. Obviously, she, she'd already resigned by this point. It's not, it's not a particularly I mean, uh, testing question. But that is one that you couldn't expect anyone to ask at PMQs at the moment. No, absolutely not. not right but interestingly, the very first question Thatcher ever got was uh, um, somebody asking her not to be too strident 
in yeah. her responses, particularly because she was the sort of first woman at the dispatch box. But the toddying stuff, people are more alive to it now, and there is a lot of groaning when the kind of when the, the sort of yeah. slimy, One slimy of the, questions yeah, come up. I admire the barefaced cheek of some of them that stand up because quite often they're, they're sort of newish yes. MPs. Yeah. yeah, you know they know that what they're going about to do is totally absurd but they um they sort of press on regardless but it also exposes i mean one of the great things about prime minister's questions is that you know it it reveals the true character of british politics it's best and it's worst you you can't kind of hide from yourself your true character comes out whether you get angry whether you and so the people that come out and do that told me they are literally saying right i am shamelessly craven <laughs> i will do <laughs> there is no pull too greasy for me you know so they're sort of self-declaring as massive sort of slimers Okay, so now in our fantasy session of Parliament's Questions, we're deep into the questions. And tip number six is do spend time on your comebacks and jokes. Because once you've asked your first question, your opponent's given their first answer, anything can sort of happen then and you need to be thinking on your feet and you can't just rely on the script that you've got. The jokes, uh, anticipating the rejoinders, the joust is really the heart of Prime Minister's questions as we know it. It is a chance where often, you know, a, a good comeback, a good crack, not only makes you look like you're quick on your feet, mainly when you're not quick on your feet, these things have been pre prepared and scripted and anticipated. But sometimes, you know, that's what can transform you from being, you know, the, the victim to the victor at Prime Minister's questions. We did one with Ed where quite early on where we predicted Cameron would have a big go at Ed about his student politics days. Oh, that's right, yeah, because it, it was about tuition fees. Exactly, yeah. and, and about how Ed was just some, some like geeky, nerdy sort of Marxist at university, all of which is true probably. But, <laughs> but, but Ed sort of let the noise subside and came back with a great line. Uh, but I wasn't hanging around with people who were throwing bread rolls and wrecking restaurants. And Cameron just hadn't expected Ed to come back with that. And it was fantastic. And, you know, our, our side was up chewing. Now, so is, that, is that planned? Yes. Because the, the, the best, I suppose, the best comeback joke is the one that looks completely spontaneous, but actually you've carefully I mean, we, we planned that so much. We actually got Ed to let Cameron get his hit in on Ed. And we even got him to let the crowd sort of roar and then the noise subside so he could come back with his rejoinder. Yeah, a lot of it is about, sometimes it's about coming back with a joke, but sometimes it's just about a factual response. But it's it's knowing, which you should know if you're a serious politician, roughly what the answer is likely to be, and then coming back with the, with the comeback. So I think David Cameron described it to us as predicted spontaneity, where, <laughs> you know, you actually, you know, it all looks spontaneous, but, you know, you're saying something, you know he's going to come back with this, you know you're going to come back with him to him with that, and then he'll say this. Um, so, you know, the, a, another example from from our time is when um, we we spotted that one of Cameron's defences on the NHS relatively early on in his time as Prime Minister was that the number of doctors was going up. And we knew that um, that, that was true, but that um, that was largely a Labour legacy issue because of the amount of time it takes. So we sort of set up Cameron to give his answer about the NHS. We said the, the number of doctors is going up so that Ed, just specifically so that Ed could come back and say, well, it takes seven years to train a doctor, so thanks for giving us credit for a record on the NHS. <laughs> and, and we knew that it was going to work out yeah. like that. Apart from anything else, it makes it harder for the Prime Minister to use that exact argument again because he knows that, that you've got to come you've back. You've got the same it. comeback. 
Okay, still to come, we'll take a look at why it's important not to lose your temper and try to give your own side something to shout about. We'll be back after this short break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Welcome back. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast with me, Matt Chorley, joining the studio by Aisha Hazarika and Tom Hamilton. Well, let's move on to uh, number seven. Do give your side something to shout about. So you're not just thinking about the person opposite you having a go at you. You need to think about the people sitting behind yeah. you as well. It's partly, partly you, it's about making your side think that you're a winner, um, which all leaders always need to do to, to make sure that they've got confidence in, in you. And your side's response to you and your performance is it, it's completely sincere. If they think that you've won PMQs, they will be happy about it. If they think that you've lost, they might try and cheer, but it'll sound a bit, a bit tinny. Um, and the thing about... The difference between, I think, the Tory side and the Labour side is the Conservatives are much better at stepping up to perform their sort of pantomime status, <laughs> like just cheering at everything the Prime Minister says. I think they go to like a special school to make <laughs> that <laughs> a, a ridiculous noise. <laughs> and the brain. Yeah. But the Labour side, I don't know if it's an educational thing, they're just not very good at taking dramatic instruction from the Whip's office. So the thing is, if you, if you do do a cork and gag... they are just very spontaneous whereas if you are failing everyone starts like sliding down into their seat and it looks terrible on the television the thing that a lot of people don't realise is that PMQs is such a vital party management tool if you have a couple of good outings at Prime Minister's questions you might not be the most popular leader you know there, there might be issues but if you can show your side that at the end of the day you can do the business at the dispatch box and you can sock it to the other side they will give you a respect and they will and they will leave with a sort of spring in their step your activists will be watching and feel good about themselves but if you're getting sort of beaten week in week out it, it is tough. Morale is low. You know, we had a couple of difficult ones with Ed. You know, by three o'clock, there was the rumours from the tea rooms about a leadership sort of contest. And so <laughs> it's just like, there are techniques for getting MPs behind you to cheer as well about, you know, you, you try and you construct a list that you then force them to, to come in on. So, you know, the Prime Minister 
will say, I'll tell you our record on the economy. Unemployment down, everyone shouts down. Um, employment up, inflation <laughs> down. You know, they basically um, turn into butlins. Yeah, and they well, join in. Yeah, but it, sometimes we'd have a situation where everyone Pavlovian. would get everyone would get really confused. So, like instead of <laughs> he'd be going up, and we'd all be our side be going down. No up, no. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing you can do is you can do is to try and get the other side to respond to you in ways that they, they don't quite know what to do and some of them will, she- will cheer and some of them won't. So, for example, when when Ed asked how many people on the government side were going to benefit from the cut in the top rate of tax and, you know, you see them wondering whether they should stick their hands up or not and what's the right thing to do. David Cameron, for two successive elections, asked Labour MPs whether they were going to put Gordon Brown and then Ed Miliband on their election material. And you, you, you'd always get two or three sticking their hand up. <laughs> which is worse than no one sitting down before everyone sort of completely ignoring it because it just highlights the fact that it, it dramatises the idea that the leader might not be all that popular. And in it's, it's theatre and it's part of it you is. Know, working the room. And-, and one of the things we did quite effectively, actually, in terms of, again, just a, a good sort of visual thing, we knew that we were going to ask an issue sort of related to, to sort of women's issues. And we knew that we had to our credit, you know, more female MPs. So we send we sent a note out through the, the whips office saying to all our female MPs to to be there and to cluster around the the front benches because we knew the Conservatives just didn't really care about that. So when the time came, Ed Ed sort of pointed to the to the front bench of cons- of the Conservatives, which was just largely loads and of I remember, white I men. I remember this, and it was particularly bad for whatever we, reason that week. We were week. really lucky. For whatever reason, you know, T- Theresa May just didn't turn up that week. Yeah. And so it was an entirely male front bench, yeah. which we hadn't predicted. As a, as a visual image, it was, it was better than we could have hoped for. OK, let's move on. Um, number eight, don't lose your rag. So in the heat of the moment, Particularly if you're a prime minister on the back foot, there's a there's a danger of sort of losing your temper. What what's the risk of that? It is one forgets about how just stressful prime minister's questions is. I mean, you are walking into a bear pit. Apart from sort of doing the the late night sort of gig at the comedy store, nothing comes close in terms of the amount of heckling you get. And again, I think it's when someone's true character comes out. You know, if you're if you're a little bit anxious, that's going to really show. If you're like Gordon Brown, you got really angry, this big clunking fist sort of flying everywhere. But you can get very angry. And David Cameron was famed for losing his temper. He'd be he's he was actually a very good performer at the dispatch box. Then a time would come where his face would start to get very red from about the neck upwards. We'd call it the crimson tide. And it was like a sort of, you know, when the incredible Hulk sort of like turns and suddenly he would turn into this flashman character and he would go completely nuts at the dispatch box and like sort of just go over the top and we could see his advisor sort of looking completely mortified you know his advisor would then brief that they're going to try and take action to make uh, to, to tone down the flashman act and you're like well that's really helpful now, we can, <laughs> now, can now, we've got, now we've got a clipping to read out if you the next following week, week. yeah and, and actually, part, a lot of that is down to what the other sides are doing. You know, Ed Balls famously used yeah. to do everything he possibly could to wind up David Cameron. And then when he blew his top, go, oh, look, yeah. look, he's blown his top. Hard-won credibility, which we wouldn't have if we listened to the muttering idiot sitting opposite me. David Cameron told us 
when he shouted... This, this subsequently for the book. For the yeah. book, yeah. He told us that um, Calm Down Dear famously shouted at Angela Eagle and got in trouble for being sexist. He now claims that it might have been Ed Balls that he was talking to he can't really remember, um, which isn't the most convincing I think convincing that ship is sailed. I think, I think <laughs> any attempt yeah. to spin his way out of that, I think that's, um, that's long but, gone. But he did say to us that actually he found the constant sledging by Ed Balls incredibly off-putting and highly annoying. Particularly in Stoke, where the Potteries community... I wish the Shadow Chancellor would occasionally shut up and listen to the answer. And Ed Balls, and we now know Ed, uh, who knew had a secret desire to perform. (laughs) (laughs) And his kind of interpretive, aggressive political mime, he felt was a very important part of the theatre of Prime Minister's Questions. And of course, the other person who used to really get under, well, many a Conservative uh, Prime Minister's skin is Dennis Skinner. He felt like it was his absolute job on this earth to sit in that seat and just sledge the whole time. And, and he put a lot of heart and soul into his role. Yeah, you can't always hear that on the telly. You might be able to hear it from from, from the press gallery. The Prime Minister can hear it, but it's not on the microphone. And so crucially for where Dennis Skinner sits, often yeah. the Speaker can't hear. Yeah. yeah, He's far enough down the chamber. can be so off-putting as well, because you know when you're at the dispatch box, you know, all eyes are on you. And Tony Blair told us this great story about how he got sledged by somebody who kept going... Your flies are undone. Your, your flies are undone. <laughs> and he was thinking, what am I going to do? Because do I do I have a look and a fiddle and just check that they... So he just said it was it was complete psychological torture. That's a great... That is a brilliant... That I'm going to use that. That's evil time. genius, yeah, yeah, yeah. isn't it? Evil genius. Okay, um, let's move on. Number nine, don't shout uh, and repeat yourself. This follows on from what we were just saying, actually, about the fact that the microphones are really good. So the noise is enormous, but... Everything that you're saying, if you're at the dispatch box, is being picked up by the mics. People watching at home can hear what you're saying. So if you do get halfway through a sentence, pause, start again, pause, start again, you just sound weird at home. So you've just got to plough on through it. And ever since the TV cameras came in, people have had trouble with this. Neil Kennick told us that he'd, ha- he'd had trouble with it. If you don't do that, then you know people will people interject or or it, it, it just won't won't sound right. So you get, you know, this wasn't PMQs, but when when John McDonnell said that his his U turn on the Tories um was it on the fiscal charter, mm. he said it was embarrassing, 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 <laughs> embarrassing. I mean that's that's much more embarrassing than just saying it once. Yeah. And he just sort of get caught in some terrible yeah. loop. And so everyone just sort of nudged the record player exactly. to sort of skip him on. But it's difficult because it's so counterintuitive. The noise it is so deafening and you sort of feel that your your whole body reverse with with the noise and it is hard you think there's no way the microphones are going to pick everything up but the the biggest biggest bit of advice to give people at the dispatch box is stay focused the other thing to not do you know somebody might be heckling you from one side of the corner so you move your head and your mouth away from the microphone and that's a big problem as well because they're very sensitive so that the the, the the message is Keep calm and plough on. Yeah. And don't pause, because if you pause, somebody will heckle. Especially if you pause at the wrong moment. Yeah. So, um, I mean, there's a there's an example of um, of Margaret Thatcher doing this, where she wanted to say that Jim Callaghan, then the Prime Minister, was, he, he, she wanted to say, he's an, I know that he's an expert in political wheeling and dealing, but she paused when she got to expert. So all she said was, <laughs> the Prime Minister's an expert, and then all the Labour MPs were, hey, <laughs> cheering at it, and you could never get back on track after that. There was one that Jeremy Corbyn did quite early on in his leadership. Meeting with uh, heads of government and leaders of European socialist parties, one of whom said to me, No, no. And... <laughs> Uh, I do remember that. Yeah. And it was very, very funny. <laughs> it's, 
it's a good heckle. It's a great heckle. So all, all you can do is not leave those openings. If you've got a pause, pause as a place where there will be no grammatical heckle possible. <laughs> but the key thing is just because the hecklers are trying to put you off, so yeah. you do pause so that they can, yeah. you know, so just, just keep on going. Yeah. Finally, number 10, which sort of ties all together and takes us back to the beginning. Number 10 is do know your brief. Ultimately, you just need to know what you're talking about. Absolutely. You you, you can't fake it um, at Prime Minister's questions. You, you are an elite politician to have got to the position where you are answering or asking those questions, but particularly answering. And it's actually very appropriate. The Know Your Brief is actually number 10 on our list because number 10 is the, is the place which needs to get all the information. And Margaret Thatcher was the first Prime Minister in 1979 to say, OK, I'm going to answer all the questions because back in the day you could actually um, outsource some of the questions. You could say, look, the, the housing minister will, will get back to you. So she said, look, I'm going to take responsibility. I'm the Prime Minister. I'll speak for the entire government at the dispatch box. And that became a way of number 10 and her sort of reaching their tentacles out into all these different departments. Um, but it also meant that she felt very fierce about needing to know everything. And John Whittingdale had a great story where there was some brief on education and she was not impressed with it at all. So she said to John, look, this will not do. This will not do. You will have to go back to the civil servant and and complain. So John went to the private secretary co- office, called this poor civil servant in the Department of Education and was sort of politely saying, look, this is not really good enough. And then Margaret Thatcher came up from behind him, grabbed the phone and went, this will not do. This will not do. So then I think that sort of made the rest of government sit up and think, right, we, we've got to work harder But John Whittingdale said to us, she was so match fit towards, you know, the end of her time. She knew everything about every single government department, but she studied for it. She took it incredibly seriously. And even after years and years of being prime minister, he said her leg would still shake at the dispatch box. She cared so passionately about knowing her brief. There's nothing that gives number 10 more control over all the different parts of government than the knowledge on the part of all the different parts of government that every week the Prime Minister is going to have to be asked questions about literally any of it and therefore has to be sufficiently briefed on what's going on so that she's not embarrassed, but also so that if she is embarrassed, she can come in and change things in ways that they wouldn't want. I mean, just because you've spent so long looking all the way back through the history of PMQs, who do you think has done it best and who has struggled most? So for me, I think that the best pairing in Prime Minister's Questions was Haig and Blair because they both were brilliant performers at the dispatch box. Haig was incredibly funny and witty. Blair was just incredibly strong. And Danny Finkelstein described it as the absolute sort of, you know, that was like Premier PMQs. That was sort of Man United versus Arsenal in the heyday. So for me, that was like the kind of vintage pairing. I know you you want to suck us into saying that Sir Corwin and May are the worst, and they're certainly not the best. But actually, I think the worst that, that we looked at was probably in Duncan Smith, actually, who didn't do it for very long. Most people have forgotten about it. But he had... He had a special sort of technique for, uh, for 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 getting through PMQs, which to, which was to ask um, ask Tony Blair a question that Tony Blair couldn't possibly know the answer to because it was so specific. You know, how many police officers are there in Birmingham? It wasn't something that you could expect the prime minister to know, so he wouldn't know. And the idea was to embarrass the prime minister, but it never worked because <laughs> it's not that embarrassing not to know at that level of detail. So so Blair could just get get onto his more general subject script and win. And what killed that question, that whole question technique was 
he stood up, he left a pause, as we said said before, never leave a pause. And a Labour MP just yelled, how many? (laughs) And IDS couldn't think on his feet, paused and just said, how many? (laughs) And at that point, that whole question strategy is dead. And finally, if you were standing at the dispatch box, which dispatch box would you rather be at? Would you rather be the opposition leader or the prime minister? Prime minister. Absolutely. Because you're in control? It's easier, actually, because... I mean, it's harder in some ways. You're there for a longer period of time. You have to have knowledge across the brief. But I think being leader of the opposition, the stakes are so high. Your your decision about what topics you pick are judged, you know, as harshly as how you actually perform in, in asking the questions. And you are always coming at it from a sort of lower status than the, the Prime Minister. And having personally coached both Prime Ministers and leaders of the opposition weirdly, it's easier doing it as the, the Prime Minister's team. Everyone we spoke to who'd done both said that doing it for the government was easier. Well, the book is absolutely fantastic. Punch of Duty Politics is out now by Aisha Hazarika and Tom Hamilton. Part two of this PMQ special will see me speaking to the people who sit on the other side of the fence, the sketch writers. So Patrick Kidd, Anne Treneman and Matthew Paris about the best and worst of PMQs as they've seen it. As ever, sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. But for now, for Aisha, Tom and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.